0: Hi, I'm Philippe.
1: I'm Justine.
0: And this is the Boards Network podcast.
1: This show is an open-ended exploration of the people and practices behind the most effective boards of directors.
0: Private companies rule a big part of the world around us, and boards dictate their strategy and decisions. We believe that by changing boards, we can change the world. Today, Justine and I have the privilege to welcome Krista Carls on the show. Krista is a Fortune 150 board member serving on the boards of Kimberly Clark and Firm. She's also a leadership council member for Share Our Strength, a nonprofit working to solve problems of hunger and poverty in the U.S. Krista helps run the No Kid Hungry national campaign working to end childhood hunger in America. She's the former CEO of Open Table, where she led the global business strategy and vision for the company. She previously held the role of CFO for OpenTable, and prior to that, served as the Chief Business Officer for Nextdoor, where she oversaw finance, business intelligence, HR, business development, and legal. Previously, Krista served as the Senior Vice President and General Manager at Disney, where she led the mobile and social games division within Disney Interactive. Earlier in her career, Krista spent 10 years as an equity research analyst covering the internet sector at Thomas Vesel Partners. Krista holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and graduated from Carnegie Mellon University.
1: Krista, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on The Boards Network. We wanted to start off by hearing a bit more about your somewhat unconventional path to the boardroom. You started your career as an equity research analyst. What skills did you think this role gave you, and how did it help you build pattern recognition and differentiation from other operators?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the basic... Fundamentals of what an equity research analyst is. it's it's you know you're trying to figure out, you know is this stock is this company going to work? And you know one of the primary, actually one of the first interactions I've had with you know which was the CEO of those companies and ultimately members of the board, and really, you know at the end of the day, it was his or her job to convince me that they were the best person and the best company in position to seek you know growth and outcome. And so I think it was an interesting opportunity in like my (laughs) mid-20s to, you know, basically be interfacing with, you know, very high-powered CEOs, and their job ultimately was to convince me that this was going to be an interesting and worthwhile opportunity in stock. I think what I learned specifically, though, were a couple things. Um, First was, you know, oftentimes if you go to work in operations immediately, you have that one company experience. The benefit of being an analyst is you get, um, in my case, it was hundreds of companies and hundreds of looks. And, you know, what that enabled me to do was build a certain amount of pattern recognition around what the success criteria often look like. Uh, So you could understand, okay, here's what an e-commerce business model versus a subscription business model versus a full SaaS business model, ad model. Etc. Here's what they looked like in infancy, here's what they looked like at scale, here's what the margin structure looked like, here's what the market valued, here's what it didn't value. And and so I think the you know, understanding and really becoming what I would characterize as a student of business models has helped me throughout my career. The second important thing was, and I sometimes say this to my children, is is really the ability to ask a good question. I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask certain questions because there's an element of fear. There's an element of, oh, my God, they're going to know I don't know something. Um, And the reality was, you know, so much of the job of an analyst was asking questions of other people. And, you know, I had to become really unafraid to ask questions about things I didn't understand or didn't know about. And I had to because of the job was such that, you know, I was taking in all this information and then building a thesis and then communicating it back out you know, they often say there's a difference between learning and the difference between learning and then being able to teach. Ultimately, my job was I had to be able to teach. So I had to ask questions to learn in such a way that I could rearticulate it, bundle it into a thesis and communicate it out to the investing community. And I think that, you know, the distillation of information, the being able to kind of distill something to assess and you had to be able to ask a really good question. And to this day, I feel, you know, unafraid, I guess, to ask the stupid question in the room. And what you learn very, very quickly is that there really is never a stupid question. And that, and that if I, you know, I would always be amused sometimes because, you know, while I went to Carnegie Mellon, I'm not a technologist per se, and I'd be in a room of technology people and I'd ask what I thought was a really stupid question and no one could answer it. So it turns out not, not a stupid question. And so I think those, those two things really did prepare me uh, in many ways for, you know, what, what was ultimately to become.
1: That's great insight into how equity research prepared you to become an operator. What made you decide to leave your position as a research analyst? How did Playdom come into the picture?
2: Well, a couple things had, had changed. One is the structure of equity research changed. So um, after the dot-com implosion, Reg FB came in and it really bifurcated research and um and, and banking. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I was charged with was going out and talking to companies and talking to all of these, you know, CEOs of, you know, from very, very, very small companies to very, very large companies. And part of my job was to figure out, will any of these become interesting IPOs at some point down the road? But a funny thing happened in those conversations. I was talking to these CEOs and I realized, oh my goodness, like I actually have a lot to offer these guys. Like I'm seeing the strategic landscape in a way that they can't. I could, you know, survey and canvas what was going on. And, you know, my, you know, that pattern recognition that I just spoke about actually came into value here because I could, you know, kind of helicopter up and look and see what was going on for a lot of these companies. And it was really exciting. I found myself getting um, very passionate and interested in the entrepreneurial experience, and so, while on the converse side, i you know you know eBay had been an incredible stock, the idea of like continuing to report on the eBay quarter, um I was just getting frankly a little bit bored with it, so i um so that was one thing that happened and then and then I would say, you know life happened, you know, I ended up uh, having my first child on the on the um, as an equity research analyst, it was a pretty punishing job. You know, I was working on the West Coast. I'd get in at four thirty in the morning during earnings season. Sometimes not leave till eleven o'clock at night, and then uh, I'd be on the road most of the time. And it was it was just you know physically, it, it so demanding that I thought there's got to be a better way to really have impact with the skill set that I have built to this point.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about your first experience working with Plaidum's board as as a CFO? You know, I understand that you arrived when the company was about 150 people. There were very few formal processes in place, and you mentioned in an interview that the threshold of 100 to 150 employees is really important breaking point for startups. So, how did that define your role when you arrived?
2: I think there's a couple of things. So, I, I have talked a little bit about how startups tend to break around 50, 150. Um, 500, 2,000, 10,000 people. And the reason for that is really just, you know, the decision trees start to fan out and how you used to make decisions, how you used to to figure out which direction you were going to go starts to change. The 150 is remarkable specifically because, you know, if you are a student of history, you'll understand, um, or Fred Sapien, um, it's Dunbar's number. So the idea that, you know, the human mind can really only manage 150 relationships, period. And so when those start to, you know, you you exceed that inside a company, that's when the forces of culture start to become really critical in figuring out, you know, how people are going to make decisions when you're not in the room. Culture is also about, you know, kind of the myth and legend and stories that people tell in order to organize a group of people, frankly, beyond 150 uh, human beings. And in our case, you know, we were right at that breaking point. We were right at the point in which all of those components were starting to break down. Uh, we were also just breaking from an infrastructure standpoint. We didn't have an HRIS. We didn't have a, you know a proper ERP system, uh, and so we had to develop all those things. And un- unlike you know the modern startup of today in 2019, in 2009, 10 years ago, a lot of these um, products, the picks and shovel, as it were, hadn't been developed for the startup community. So we were, you know, kind of left to our own devices. Uh, so it was a really challenging time. And, and, you know, we were kind of making it up as we went along. I also didn't have um, a, a ton of operating experience, obviously, because I had come out of the banking world. So a lot of it was new to me. But it goes back to, you know, asking the good question, figuring things out, uh, being curious about how you know, how systems work and, and going and solving problems. And I think that was um, indicative for me. I think as it relates to our board, um, the board was, you know, we were a venture-backed private company. We are you know, backed by Lightspeed and Bessemer and NEA and, uh, and, and several others. Uh, and, you know, they were primarily concerned with, you know, can we continue to grow at the pace that we were growing at? And, you know, how were we growing? Um, So we were building our own games and developing those, but we were also acquiring companies. Um, At the time, Zynga was the number one social gaming company. We were number two. So we were playing a quick game of catch-up and we acquired eight companies in eight months, which I would, by the way, not recommend to startups because, you know, it it put an incredible... Most of them were aqua hires. Some some of them were technology-specific. Some of them were game-specific Um, acquisitions, but it was a tremendous strain to try and integrate. And they weren't just like in the U.S. We bought them in Argentina and India. The layers of complication that we put onto the company were tremendous. And trying to fit that all together was pretty hard. And so I think you know the board was you know rightly wanted to make sure that you know can we swallow all these? How are we doing it? You know how quickly are our costs ri- rising relative to our revenue you know it's it's interesting that uh you know we we kind of went away with you know growth at all costs you know was was sort of the mantra even at the early start of two thousand and nineteen, and now all of a sudden it's like profitability is sexy again, and I think frankly, in my view it's always been sexy uh you know I think if you want to build something sustainable you will build process and capability that is, um, you know, that, that will ultimately drive free cash flow because the alternative is, is uh, it can be short-lived and it, 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 it's costly, frankly, from an equity investment standpoint.
0: Acquiring eight companies in eight months is uh, pretty intense. I'm, I'm curious to understand what was the tempo of communication with your board and to what extent they were involved in, you know, both due diligence and approving these investments?
2: Probably less involved with the the deep level of due diligence, but they were obviously, you know, really critical for the approval of the acquisition. And I think also making sure that, you know, we're not overpaying for you know what these things were. But I think the back to the core ambition of the board and frankly, the management team was, hey, we've got to grow. Hey, we've got this competitor in Zynga that is um, growing much, you know, they were much bigger than we were rather. So, you know, how do we become a credible number two or maybe even number one? And so, you know, uh, part of it was bolting on these these acquisitions in pursuit of growth. I think the other challenging thing is just the gaming industry in and of itself. Um, you know, I think at the time there was some belief, like, are we building the new platform the new console, if you will. And I think the reality was we were building hit games and you can live and die mm-hmm. by a hit franchise. And, and, and um, you know, it's a, it's a very volatile industry and in pursuit as a result.
0: Well, Disney acquired the company quite quickly after you joined, less than a year later. Were you actually preparing for that acquisition from the first day of the company, or did that happen quite opportunistically?
2: Uh, it, didn't, it It was not the case. Although, curiously, we had, um, we had struck some brand-related franchise deals with Disney prior to. So we had done a deal with Marvel to produce some Marvel games ahead of time. So we had had a relationship in place, but certainly not prepared. And, um, you know, one area that was notable was in um, order, the board uh, at Disney required that Playdom get its, you know, be audited. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seems obvious before they acquired it, but we had never gone through an audit process before. I hadn't even been there a year yet. So, um, you know, we had to kick off an audit and do it relatively quickly. And, you know, the social gaming space was new. So the the auditors were trying to put us into a certain model. So like even the revenue recognition for social games ended up being a you know a very very complicated process. I always joke to people I'm like we had to amortize Thor's hammer uh, throughout the life of the game. Um, and so it was a really that was complicated because we were not really prepared to be acquired by you know a 90 plus year old media company in many dimensions. Um, I think, but it what Disney was looking at, and I think you're starting to see, you know, the thinking, frankly, of Bob Iger and the and the brilliance and genius that he had, which was just the world is changing, people are consuming entertainment in many, many different forms, be it streaming, gaming, um, all of these are, are you know, the, the consumer's attention is being diverted. And Disney was aggressive, and Disney took risks, and Disney, you know, made mistakes and you know made successes. But if you look at transition of large media company. I don't think there's anybody <laughs> even comes close to comparing to the success that Disney has made in its in its transformation.
1: Post the acquisition, you remained CFO and head of business operations. We're curious to hear about how the governance and decision making process may have changed at that point. What worked well and what was challenging?
2: So yeah, I, I stayed on, and we we ended up combining several other businesses that Disney had bought, including Tapulous. Uh, which was one of the very first mobile game developers out there, but um, we were radically different cultures. Um, as I mentioned, they were a 90-year-old media company that was very structured, and I think there's a, you know, I always, you know, make this joke, you know, to paraphrase Anna Karenina, you know, all big companies are alike, and all startups are kind of startupy in their own kind of unique way, and and I think, you know, all big companies are alike in the sense that they are large and slower and political and we were this crazy frenetic, you know, hair on fire all the time. And so there was a little bit of schizophrenia that I experienced, you know, I'd, I'd be in Palo Alto, you know, at the platinum offices and it was like, you know, crazy town and Red Bull and, you know, the, the developer community. And then I'd literally put a suit on and go down to Burbank and, and, you know, communicate with the folks at team Disney. So it was a pretty, and I was sort of the point of, of the sphere and, uh, you know, I was having to translate what it was that Clayton was doing to the Disney executive team. And that was hard. And I think that there was a lot that they didn't fully understand. I mean, even the concept, like we had free lunch for our employees and they're like, well, get rid of the free lunch. And I was like, well, that's part of the culture. And, um, you know, even though it's not exactly part of the culture, I think it was, you know, very uh, you know, endemic to how a Silicon Valley company operated and so the translation of that was was hard. I think the other challenges that we ran into were you know people have roles and responsibilities in large companies and you know I, there was a there was a time where I know my my controller was was trying to communicate some of the challenge that I just spoke about with regard to the complexity of how you can recognize revenue for our company to the other folks at Disney. And, you know, she got yelled at for trying to set international accounting policy. And she was like, I was just trying to help. Um, and I think that's, that's that's pretty indicative. I mean, I think that people, you know, take pride, but there's also a, such a degree of specialization in large companies that is often at odds with the, I'm going to wear a bunch of hats inside a startup. And, you know, again, I was the the point of intersection for all of it. So, you know, having to to, you know, kind of, Understand the one side and then articulate that out to the other side was, um, you know, a big chunk, frankly, of my job.
1: After Disney, you had the chance to join Nextdoor as chief business officer. Given you probably had a number of opportunities to choose from, what made you choose Nextdoor and how was your role different than your role at Disney?
2: You know, I, I think it's worth noting. I you know I was commuting down to LA, not just one or two days a week at that point, probably five. And I was like, I gotta either move to LA or or I gotta find another job. The thing that appealed to me about Nextdoor was, you know, I I do, um, you know, one of the models that I analyzed while I was an analyst was, you know, kind of the marketplace concept. You know, you have demand on one side, supply on the other side, and I I was. Fairly enamored with that model, and um, when I joined Nextdoor, it did not have the what I would call the merchant side of the equation. But you could see that it was possible. I, you know, I lived in a Nextdoor neighborhood, and I loved the concept of you know what it could become in terms of you know the the idea of trusting your neighbor and getting local recommendations for things. And so I saw the value of of what it could be. Um, that being, and, and my job, you know, as chief business officer, I was really running everything except for, you know, marketing, engineering, and product. Um, but at that point, it was still a relatively small company, and it was pre-revenue. And um, truth be told, I think it was too early for where my skill set largely lies. You know, I think the idea of taking something that already has revenue and figuring out how to grow it faster and scaling it was probably more my wheelhouse than, you know, the instantiation of
0: revenue. Shortly after you joined Nextdoor, you had the very exciting opportunity to join OpenTable shortly after its acquisition by Priceline. Despite its acquisition, Priceline decided to continue to operate the business as a separate entity at the time. How did the board of OpenTable look like when you joined as CFO and was all the board reshuffled? And did you still have separate board meetings or were you only reporting to Priceline's CEO?
2: at the conclusion of the deal from, you know, of OpenTable, which was a public company with a public company board, to Priceline, that board was essentially dissolved. And so then the new board structure, the way it worked inside Priceline, which was the six brands, so, you know, Priceline, Booking.com, Kayak, OpenTable, RentalCars.com, and Agoda, um, those six brands um, were basically part of the board meeting. So the overall board, of Priceline Group now called Booking Holdings, Inc. was such that, you know, we reported into that board. One thing, though, that I felt like we were missing was, you know, very specific dining experience. And so one of the things I crafted was more of an advisory board of, you know, famous kind of restaurateurs, chefs uh, that could lend very specific feedback to dining Um, you know, around dining specifically, as opposed to broader hospitality, hotels, flights, etc. But we, you know, we became part of the, you know, much larger board that sat around us.
0: I think you arrived when growth started to flatten out and you were, I think you mentioned, 60% penetrated in, in your market segment. So OpenTable had clearly reached a breaking point and needed to kind of redefine and expand its TAM. To what extent did the board of Priceline drive this change versus OpenTable's executive team, and who gave the impulse?
2: Well, one of the reasons I even became CEO was—I don't know if it's frustration, but you know—I think there was a belief that the old ways of how OpenTable was operating needed to change, and so I was put in place with a very clear and specific mandate for change. And you're right; I mean, I think you know, OpenTable had worked forever and ever and ever until it didn't. And one of the reasons it didn't, I think, was because it had very narrowly defined its TAM as, you know, fine dining, occasion-based, restaurant reservation-taking service. And we had to do a lot of things. So, you know, one of the things that I like in is that, um, you know, if if OpenTable was originally, you know, a a venture-backed startup and then a pre-IPO company and then really a public company, you know, I I took over OpenTable when it was really in almost the private equity take private side of its. Life cycle, mm-hmm. and and there was a lot of changes that we needed to make. I think first and foremost, the technology that OpenTable used was woefully outdated. Uh, the company needed to move into the cloud, but if you know anything about a small medium sized business, the idea that you go in and say, "Hey, you need to you know use a brand new technology now," um, is a really delicate and dangerous, frankly, time for that company because now it's you, you basically position. The small business to decide. Maybe, maybe I don't need this. Maybe I want to use something else. They they're forced to redecide on something that they didn't have to decide upon. Um, but we thought it was critical to move the entire business into the cloud. So a lot of people don't realize it. You know, a lot of people know that Open Table has the consumer side of the business, they don't necessarily understand that we're putting um, SaaS software inside the restaurant to help them more efficiently manage their tables. So help them with operations. As well as help them, you know, deliver hospitality solutions to restaurants, and so um, moving that software uh, kind of into the cloud, giving the and, and really benefiting from the cloud, which was ultimately real-time data and information. And so, how do we become the point of business intelligence for the restaurant? The you know the operating system for the restaurant, as it were. So that was you know kind of job number one. Job number two was, you know, really redefine the TAM. Um, One of the nice things, though, is data can usually be your guide. So, you know, we were noticing that, you know, top 10 search queries, PF Chang's was number two. Well, we didn't have PF Chang. You know, those styles of restaurants were were not historically on, on OpenTable, yet, the diners that we knew and loved were asking for it. And so it was a simple matter of really better understanding the demand that was already latent on our platform and driving a restaurant strategy to go and deliver that. And then in some cases, it worked in the in the sense that restaurants that took reservations, then there were restaurants that didn't take reservations. So broadening the platform to more, you know, waitlist walk-in casual style um, reservations. We were also seeing this, you know, consumer behavior where, you know, uh, a good chunk, you know, about a third of restaurant reservations on the app were happening within 90 minutes of seating time. And if you think about it, that's that's not really a reservation anymore. That's like, a you know, what's available and around me, you know, and open right now. Uh, and that is a different consumer behavior and um, really understanding and frankly, leaning into the activity um, that was already happening on the platform. And then there were a number of other things. I think the, The, you know, one of the most important things being part of the pricing group was broadening our international footprint. Um, Open Table had been positioned in, you know, the UK, Germany, and Japan. But if you looked at some of the sister brands within the company, you know, I think booking is in 232 markets and territories. They're literally in every part of the globe. And, you know, we had to really broaden and expand our international footprint but you know with local market network effects that's hard because you basically have to rebuild your business in each new market that you go into Uh, there really isn't a a scale benefit in many ways other than um, you know driving travelers in so how to do all that and then you know i think the the final big thing that we did was really look at the business model back to business models for a second and say you know is this is this serving the restaurant well um at the end of the day we were delivering marketing operations and hospitality solutions to a restaurant but we didn't look act or behave like a marketing partner and usually a marketing partner I means you know as the restaurant you can decide when you're on the platform when you're off the platform how much do you want to spend when do you want to spend so evolving the product to basically give the restaurant agency over their marketing spend on the platform
0: I'm curious to better understand what was the process to appoint you as interim ceo then full-time ceo did you have that perspective when you joined the company how does that work in practice uh, was it a clear path from the start that you were going to lead the integration into priceline as ceo or was there a fixed term contract how did that work
2: it was ultimately about myself so uh, <laughs> they, i they, they were it was clear that you know the, the ceo job would open up. So I think it, you know, when I joined, it was it was viewed as a credible succession opportunity. I think what I did not fully appreciate was the speed with which that change would happen. So I was thinking maybe a year or two, and it was three months, and that was interesting because, it, you know, in hindsight, it ended up, you know, at first I was like, whoa, that that was fast, but in hindsight, it turned out to be the perfect way to enter because. As CFO, I got to see where everybody was buried, yet I wasn't attached to the decisions that put those bodies in the ground. Um, so I was, I was able to really see and have a good, clear picture of what was going on. I had clear context for where the challenges were, but yet I was not associated with the decisions that created those challenges. So I could move more freely than, you know, frankly, executives that might have been hamstrung because they were, you know, part of that, that system. And so, you know, I became interim CEO in August, and then the board officially appointed me by November.
1: You mentioned a few initiatives you undertook at OpenTable to reaccelerate growth. How did you leverage and work with your board to decide on which initiatives to pursue and how to best execute those initiatives?
2: You know, I think the, the three key things was, you know, the upgrading of the technology, the expansion, really, of the internationalization. And then third, was the, you know, the broadening of the footprint to more casual and everyday dining. Um, I think the the other things that happened in the background, I think those were the explicit things. I think the implicit things were, we need to change the culture of the company. And I think that's not always um, fully appreciated by boards. I mean, I think one of the the big things in, you know, board discussion groups these days is, you know, how do you really get a good read on what the culture is how do you get a sense of how you know the company you know moves acts and operates especially in this era with you know me too or esg concerns and other areas there's deeper question of like how you know how does culture really shape and change the organization so you know while the explicit goals were very real I was not going to be successful unless I implicitly changed the culture. And, and I think, you know, the, the kind of communication back to the board of, and here's, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what the challenges are. Here's what is getting in the way. And here's, you know, here's frankly my plan to, to evolve the business. And, you know, I think one of the key things I like to talk about, I think because OpenTable was successful Really early on, and then it was you know starting to have challenge was this fear of screwing it up. Like we've got this great marketplace, it works. Um, restaurants show up, consumers show up, you know it, it, like you know don't don't mess it up. Um, but the reality was, if you're not taking risk by definition, you will not have reward. And I had to kind of Im- <laughs> imbue upon the culture like, look, if we look tomorrow, like we do today, we're 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 not going to have a marketplace anymore, and so counterintuitively, kind of I had to figure out how to make it unsafe not to take risks, and and I think that is something that is hard, frankly, for boards to appreciate because you're just not on the ground and you're not seeing that decision making happening. I think what ultimately the board cared a lot about was, hey, are you driving, you know, EBITDA free cash flow growth? Mm -hmm. Uh, in the org and so all of those you know sort of you know i'd say high level strategic changes and cultural changes hopefully manifest in you know financial changes you know i think i think that's the the key message here is that you know at the end of the day i'm going to be held accountable for whether or not i can deliver to you know the board and so you know we Grew our EBITDA pretty meaningfully. We I think it's you know three to four times uh, during during the tenure there uh, growth and and I think that's you know I think that's where it all kind of comes together. At the end of the day, you know I can talk to my employees. No employee is going to be you know maybe maybe the finance department, but usually employees aren't motivated by hey let's just grow revenue faster. Some some might be. Most of the time employees are saying. Hey, this is a really hard problem that I feel emotionally connected to, and I'm going to work really hard because I I believe that my contribution will have impact um, not only on you know the problem that we're solving, but you know the underlying customer that they are going to be able to grow their business and thrive as a result of the activities that OpenTable took. And so I think oftentimes as a CEO, you're the middle layer. <laughs> between communicating to the employees and getting them motivated and emotionally connected to the underlying problem. And then my job then is to translate that into a financial outcome that the board is going to see.
1: I wanted to dig in a bit more into your comment that sometimes it's hard for boards to read culture since they're not necessarily on the ground all the time. Can you give board members advice on how to approach culture issues? Or do you think board members should step back and let the executive teams run with any culture issues?
2: I think the board needs to be aware if you have a culture that is not healthy. Now, if you are the leader of that unhealthy culture, your tendency is going to want to be to shield the board from it. I think there are ways as a board member and, you know, sitting on a couple of boards, I would say that, you know, ask for the engagement surveys. What questions do they ask? How are they answered? You know, how, you know, see it by the de- department or division and see if you can see pockets. Where is their turnover? from an employee basis, you know, every day an employee votes by coming into work or not coming into work again. Um, They're, they're, they're only volunteers. You know, they're not beholden to you at all. And I think there's a lot of readout. And I think this is where you're starting to see more and more CHROs joining boards, because there's a belief of, you know, in a knowledge economy, the people are the asset. And if people are not happy or they're not engaged or they're not feeling like that they're in a position to contribute, the company won't be successful. You won't get to that financial output that the board's ultimately seeking. So at the end of the day, you know, as a board member, you know, I think getting a readout on that and, and you can read and see, is the CEO open to this or not? Are they worried, you know, about able to meet with their head of sales and not have my CEO present? Okay. You know, I think those are those are good guideposts to see, you know, is something is something wrong underneath the
0: hood? You've seen a lot of companies go from seed to mature, sustainable businesses over your career. I'm curious to know what are the main breaking points of a company? You know, you mentioned 150 people, 500, 10,000. Which of these ones require a material change at the board, either through the addition or removal of board members or through reorganization into subcommittees, for example?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think a couple of things. One is, it depends if the company is private or public. Um, but I mean, I think anytime a company is getting to a thousand plus people, you are now, you know, you should be readying yourself for becoming a public company. And so a lot of times, you know, if a, if a company is not being conscious about it, they will, you know, kind of look up, they've got 1200 employees and they have, you know, four investors on their board. And, you know, the reality is they should probably start thinking sooner than that, uh, around getting independent views and voices on, on the board. Um, and specifically, you know, where independent board members become really, really critical, is if there's a, p- a potential liquidity event. So it could be an IPO, but it could be, hey, you know, this company is now large and they get an acquisition offer. Mm-hmm. Well, the challenge of an acquisition offer is that each of those investor board members is going to have a different criteria around what they see as that liquidity event. And the only person around the board <laughs> would be the independent to say, like, cause they don't have a dog in the hunt, so, so to speak. And so they are the only one who can, you know, kind of assess probably the most objectively whether or not this, you know, this outcome would be the right one. And it can also be, you know, this person can also serve as a, as, as a good partner also to the CEO who, you know, may not have the the voice relative to the, Um, investor board members. So I think, you know, bringing the independence on is is really important. I think depending on the industry that the company is in, thinking through and saying, okay, like, you know, in the case of like a fintech company, you're going to have, you know, a set of um, regulations and requirements, perhaps that, you know, a different, like an e-commerce company, for example, might not. And so, you know, what kind of specialization are you going to require? um long term though i think you know i mean for example i sit on a large public company board and you know we we think out over the next 10 years who's retiring you know what skill sets are leaving what skill sets do we want to add let's make sure that we're mapping out and making sure we understand okay here are all the the skills and views um, around the table that we ultimately need. And it's not that you want those people just to opine on the area of their specific skill set, but by virtue of having that skill set, they will have a diversity of thought and opinion that's ultimately critical to uh, you know, a, a high functioning board.
1: Having been both a board member and executive, what do you think is the best approach for company goal setting? How does this differ when the company is an early stage startup versus a large public company?
2: Well, I think it would be a mistake for the board to set the goals for the company. Um, I think that boards generally don't have anywhere near the context. I think, you know, it is the CEO's job to communicate their, you know, the company's goals to the board and then the board to decide whether those are sufficient or not. You know, are does the board need, you know, sandbagging on, you know, their sales goals, for example. Like, you know, what data would they have to support that? And so I think it's really the the company's job to present the goals, how they're thinking about themselves, how they're pushing themselves. And really, the you know, the board's job is saying, okay, are the goals realistic and how do I hold them accountable? if they don't meet the goals some companies you know if you do an okr process if you hit 100 percent of your okrs then you set bad goals and so you know making sure there's deep communication on what the goals actually are how much stretch is embedded inside the goals because you just don't want people to setting goals that they know that they can achieve because then they're never going to push the organization and so getting a deep understanding of like a, a, an agreement on hey you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to put some stretch into these goals, which means we're not by definition going to hit all of them, but we're going to communicate with you along the way. And we're going to tell you where there's challenge, where there's opportunity. Hopefully we'll exceed the goals in one dimension. And we probably are going to get surprised by roadblocks on other dimensions. And that's going to be okay. As long as I think you're communicating and frankly, that the whole ends up achieving, you know, a, a set of growth or profitability that, that the board thinks is reasonable.
0: We're arriving at our final questions. I know you also sit on the board of a firm and Kimberly Clark. What other boards would you dream to sit on if you could pick any company in the world?
2: Well, I, I would love to come back to Disney in, in a <laughs> more capacity. Yeah, but maybe that's, that's too ambitious. But um, I, you know, I think that it's such an iconic company, and I, you know, having viewed it from an employee perspective and sir so seeing you know kind of the broader landscape and the technological shift the business model shift i think it's just a really interesting space but absent that i would say you know there um you know i really enjoy i mean you know, what's interesting about board service is that it it is in fact certainly the company and the the leadership team that you're talking with but it's also the other board members they are the most important almost part of the whole experience is you know am i connecting with these other people am i learning from these other people and their experiences in many ways. And so um, on both the boards that I've sat on, there's such a you know, different kind of uh, board member on each of them that it's, it's been kind of fun to, to kind of learn and grow. I will say um, being directly connected to the entrepreneur in the case of a firm and Max Lifton has been really um, delightful uh, because, you know, you, you see the mind of creation and possibility and frankly vision for where he wants to take that company and it's it's really fun and exciting to be a part of somebody who, you know, is the is the entrepreneur but also ultimately the CEO for the company. Uh and so, you know, I think there's there's lots lots that can be done there.
1: And for our final question, if you were a founder today, who are the two or three people you would want sitting on your board?
2: Oh goodness. Um (laughs) that's a good question. I um, you know, I think one of the, the the people who um, has actually been a mentor to me. And she sits on a couple of very, very high powered boards as a woman named Sue Decker, who was the, she was the, um, president at Yahoo, but she sits on Berkshire Hathaway and used to sit on Cos- uh, uh, Intel rather. And I think she's on Costco and used to be on Pixar. Um, but Sue's just incredibly smart and thoughtful. And, you know, she had, Basically, a fairly similar career in terms of, you know, was an equity research analyst, then went to operate and now does board service. And so I think she would have deep empathy for you know, <laughs> my position and, and, and my condition there. Who um, would be the number two? I just, uh, she, she kind of immediately came to mind. I, I might leave it at that, um, as uh, I'm not sure I could top, uh, top her in terms of my number one board choice.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode.
1: We hope you found some wisdom and knowledge that you can apply during your next board meeting or more broadly in your business journey.
0: If you like this conversation, please share it with your friends and colleagues and write a review on iTunes to help others discover the show.
1: To find more episodes of the Boards Network podcast, go to boardsnetwork.com.
0: You can also follow us on Twitter at Boards Network for the show, at Philippe Nissen
1: and at Justine Huang 34 for our personal accounts.